And please turn in your Bibles to 1 John. Always an exciting time in the life of our church to turn to a new book. A new book that has a certain argument, a certain message for us to understand. Welcome to those of you who are visiting here. You're here on a good day. Every Sunday is good, we think. Uh, but you're here at the beginning of a new uh, study for us in um, the book of First John. We have our normal practice to be going verse by verse through books of the Bible so that we understand exactly what God has been, God is writing to us for in each of these books. And again, we come to a new book and we're glad that you're here. If you're here and you're not a Christian or, or wondering about Christianity, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I, I would refer you back to the song that we just sung we as God's people just sung that our sins are many, but His mercy is more. You walk into a room this morning where all of us know that we've fallen short of God's glory. We have not obeyed like we should. We all know in this room that we deserve God's wrath because how we've stiff-armed and rebelled against Him. But the reason we're in this room and singing and loving one another is because we know that we've been forgiven by the Father because He sent His Son to obey in our place, and He sent His Son to die for us and pay the penalty of our sins that we deserve. And His Son rose again, showing that there is something to this message. God the Father raised His Son. There is life that comes out of His Son's death, so we can be confident that when we die, we will be alive. We will be with God, reconciled because of what His Son Jesus Christ did. So you walk into a room this morning full of sinners just like you, but this is a room of people that know that Jesus Christ has forgiven our sin and made us right with the Father, and we'd invite you into that relationship with God the Father. We're glad that you're here. Now, we turn to 1 John. New book, an important book, an often misunderstood book. And I wonder how many of you might misunderstand 1 John. It's a book meant to give comfort, but often people think of 1 John and there's one word that comes to their mind, tests. Well, who likes tests? Not many people. But this book is about comfort, and I want you to see that and appreciate this book the way it's intended to be appreciated. I remember 1984, some of you have no idea about 1984. You just read about it in books. But 1984, I was a young boy, and the presidential election that year was between President Ronald Reagan and his challenger, Walter Mondale. And I don't remember much about that election season. I wasn't that old then. But I do remember an interview that Walter Mondale did, and the interviewer asked him whether he knew he was going to heaven or not. And his answer was, I don't know, I hope so. And what I remember is my mom's response to that. My mom, who's now a Christian, who then wasn't, but even then she knew and she told me, she said, we can know if we're going to heaven or not. The Bible reveals whether we will be with God reconciled after we die or whether we will experience His punishment. And she made it clear to me, we can know. And she was so concerned about his answer that he didn't know. And she was right. 
Even in her unconverted state, she knew enough of the Bible to know that the Bible does promise eternal life, and God reveals to us that we can know now that we'll have it now and in the future. And this book is about that. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, wrote a book about this, wrote a book about the assurance of faith. It's a rather lengthy book, and he entitled it Heaven on Earth. So why would someone entitle a book about assurance of salvation, knowing that you're right with God and will have eternal life in the future, knowing that you're right with God? Why would he write and entitle the book Heaven on Earth? Well, Brooks says that Being a Christian and not knowing, not being assured of your faith, kind of has you in between heaven and earth, and in between heaven and hell. You don't really know which way you'll go in the future. And so to be assured that you will be with God in heaven, with God in glory, enjoying fellowship with Him forever and not punishment, to be assured of that is a kind of heaven on earth while you live heaven on earth. So many Christians today are troubled, rightly so, by their own sin, by my own sin. We're troubled by that. And if we stare at ourselves and our deformities and deficiencies, spiritually speaking, we don't come away with assurance. We come away with concern. We come away discouraged sometimes maybe even unsure of where we stand with God. The Apostle John wrote this letter to a congregation trying to reassure them of the eternal life that they currently possessed and would one day possess with God their Father and Jesus Christ His Son. The Apostle John writes this letter to assure believers that they are right with God. What an important book for us. As I said, this book is often understood as a series of tests to see if you're truly a Christian. One of the ways this book has been taught is there are a series of tests to show what true Christians are like and non-Christians are like, and you kind of take the test and see where you're at. And there's a kind of grain of truth to that, but underneath, uh, that truth is underneath the umbrella of Christian, one who has believed in Jesus Christ, you do have eternal life. That is the theme of the book. So some people see this, again, as a test. Now picture yourself in a classroom, and you're with, let's say, 30 people, and you're being given a test. And this isn't an easy test. This is a very hard test that even the 4.0 students are very nervous about. This test is a test that questions whether you are right with God or not. And as the teacher is passing out the test, you are all sweating. D student, sweating. A student, sweating. This is a test like none other. And so people often speak of 1 John as this test. Go through the test, see where you match up. Do you love perfectly? Are you perfectly righteous? Do you have perfect doctrine? Uh, Let's see how you do. And then the test is over, and you ask the teacher, hey, when will it be graded? I want to know where I stand. Oh, in a few weeks. And the next few weeks are like, oh, where do I stand? I don't know if I pass. And people teach First John that way 
And they know because of chapter 5, verse 13, it's meant to give reassurance and comfort. So they teach it as a series of tests. Do you pass or do you not? And then they come to 1 John 5 and they go, well, you're supposed to be comforted. How's that going? I don't feel comfortable at all. And I would argue that's because of a wrong teaching of this book. And I hope to show you that today. hope to show you the right way this book should be understood. That most faithful Bible teachers preach, they, they preach it this way, the correct way, but there are some out there that don't. They preach it, and you come away not reassured when that is John's goal, but you come away even more concerned, and that's a problem. I'll show you this as I go through, because some of you doubt me right now. <laughs> I'm guessing. I don't know. Maybe you're with me already. This morning, I want to give you a general understanding of this book, so I've entitled this morning's message, First John Introduction, and I know that sounds really exciting. I mean, what a title that is, First John Introduction. And again, sticking with the classroom theme, you think of the first day of school, and the teacher says, I'm just going to walk through the syllabus today and show you kind of where we're going for the semester, and you think, oh, this is riveting. This is so good. Well, I hope you don't see it that way. I hope you see it more like uh, the free samples given out at Costco. Ooh, I'll take a little bite of crab cake, and you eat it, and you think, oh, I want more of that. So that's my prayer, that as we go through this introduction, we get kind of an understanding of 1 John, a basic understanding of it, and as we go through it in the coming months, it'll kind of whet your appetite and be something that tastes really good, (laughs) is really appreciated. I want to start by referring you to John's gospel. Now you're in 1 John, you can stay there. But I'm going to refer you back to the purpose statement of the Gospel of John when he wrote and intentionally organized things to reveal who Jesus was. He wrote for a purpose. Those of you studying the Gospel of John know this. You know what chapter it's in in the Gospel of John. Where's the purpose statement in the Gospel of John? What chapter? Chapter 20. You're getting this. You got it. All right. Chapter 20, 30, and 31. Listen to this. John writes in his gospel, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, continuing to believe, you may have life in his name. So John wrote his gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, and that, to, and that you would believe that he's the Son of God, And that by believing, you would have life in his name, spiritual life forever by his authority, by his doing. That's why John wrote his first book, his his gospel. Now he writes this epistle, this letter, to a group of people who have believed. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe that he's the Son of God. They do have life in his name. And he writes this epistle so that they would be reassured that they have the eternal life. So the gospel, I want you to know that you have eternal life if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now the epistle, you have eternal life, but I want you to be assured of that. I want you to know that. So you're in 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 5, 13. Here's the purpose statement of this book. Pastor John read it earlier. I'll read it again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So Gospel of John, reader, believe this message. First Epistle of John, those of you who've believed, know, be assured, you have eternal life. That's what's happening here. God the Father wants people to be assured of their salvation. God the Holy Spirit, who authored this book, wants people to be assured of their salvation. In John chapter 6, Jesus Christ wants people to know that they can be assured of their salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are interested in you being assured of what your future holds, not wondering or having any doubts. Now, you might think, okay, I mean, haven't Christians always taught that? Hasn't the the church always taught that? No, they haven't. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't teach that. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages didn't teach that. In fact, Pope Gregory the Great said, assurance, if people have assurance of the future, assurance is the mother of negligence. If you think you're going to heaven, you will neglect to be righteous and to do good and to love. And he was wrong. Because the Spirit of God assures people of where they stand because of the work of God in Jesus Christ. And that Spirit of God is so powerful that when someone believes in the message of Jesus Christ, that Holy Spirit changes them to want to obey, to want to be righteous, to walk in newness of life. Assurance is not the mother of negligence. Assurance is actually the mother of fruitfulness. So the Pope was wrong. Thomas Aquinas himself taught that true assurance is actually unattainable. So Thomas Aquinas said that true assurance is unattainable. Well, if Tom was here today, I would read this again to him. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. No, true assurance is not unattainable. In fact, it's the purpose of for which John wrote. And we know who's behind John's pen, the Holy Spirit of God. Eternal life is not only promised, but God wants his followers to know that they possess it, to rest assured that they possess it. So I've entitled this series, I'm looking at the wrong slide, I've entitled this series uh, something like Assured Child of God. I sent the title in and I forgot it and wrote something in my notes. So it's something about assured child of God. Why? Because assurance is the theme. And why child of God? Why don't I say assured believer? Because being a child of God is a constant theme throughout these five chapters. God wants us to be assured as his children. Children knowing about their standing with the Father. Assured child of God. If we understand the epistle of 1 John, we're going to need to understand some things about it. And so I've given you the outline for the morning, five keys to understanding 1 John, five keys to understanding 1 John. And first is to understand the purpose statement, which I've already touched on, the purpose statement. Chapter 5, verse 13. I'll be referring to that a number of times throughout this message. So chapter 5, verse 13, John's writing so that we would know, those of us who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God, we, we, would, we would know that we have eternal life. 
That's the purpose statement. Now, here's a second question to ask. So if the first question is, why did John write this? What's the purpose? The second question is, okay, but why did he write this to his original hearers? Why did he write it to them, to this church? Now, as we've talked a lot about in our church, the books of the Bible have purposes to them. They're written for a purpose, each of them. And, and I want you to know what didn't happen as the apostles started to write Scripture. It's not as if they lined up. So you've got Peter, John, the writer of Hebrews. They're all kind of lined up in this group. They come before a table, and there are two hats, pieces of paper in each hat. And Paul comes up to the first hat, and he takes out a paper that says this. Don't let anybody tell you that you need visions, asceticism. If you have Jesus, you have everything. So he takes that out of the first hat. The first hat is a bunch of topics. Apostle Paul takes that, and then he kind of feels into the second hat. I wonder what church I'm going to write this to. Pulls it out, and Colossians. Okay, Paul, here's your assignment. Write about the fact that they have all they need in Jesus Christ by believing in his death and resurrection. They have all they need, and write it to the Colossians. Okay, so Paul goes and writes the Colossians. And then the writer of Hebrews comes up and goes into the topic hat and takes it out, and you Jewish Christians, those of you who have committed to Jesus from a Jewish background, don't give in. You're being persecuted for your faith. Don't give in. Stay with Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. And so he reaches into, who am I going to write this to? Will it be the Galatians? Will it be the Ephesians? Timothy, maybe? Titus? Who am I going to write this to? Pulls it out and, ah, Jewish Christians who are being tempted to turn back because they're persecuted. Okay, I'll, I'll write that letter to them. And Paul steps up again, reaches into topic hat, pulls out, be careful, church. False teaching and your own selfishness and disunity could keep you ineffective in working for the sake of the gospel. Be careful. Okay, who am I going to write this to? Ah, the Philippians. It just happened to be them. That's not how it happened. The apostles knew things that were happening in particular churches, and so they wrote letters to address those things. And we are to understand those contexts for us to rightly understand the letter. So what was the context that John was writing in? What were these people going through that made him not just draw out a hat, oh, I'll talk to them about assurance. Paul will talk about other things. No, no. Assurance needed to be written to this congregation. They needed it because of what they were going through. So you see in 513 the purpose statement, but the question we ask is, but why these people? Why did they need assurance? And for that, we'll go to the second point. Second key to understanding the gospel or the, the epistle of John, first epistle of John. The problematic departed. Now, when I say that, I'm referring to a group of people. They're a problematic group of people who have departed from the church. That is the context to which John writes. 
So there's a group of people that have stayed, remained, the congregation there, and he's writing to assure them, and you ask, well, why would he need to reassure them? What's going on? Because there was a group of people that left the church and were trying to influence the people that were still staying there. That doesn't happen at all anymore in churches today. I'm just kidding. There's a problematic departed. Now, if I ask you, if I say, hey, can you do a little study for me? Can you tell me what the Polish people, so citizens of Poland, were like in the 1940s? And then I say, but but, but listen, you're not allowed to refer to Germany or the Nazi party or anything like that. Just tell me what the Polish people are like in the 40s. You couldn't do it. Because to rightly understand the people of Poland in the 1940s was to understand that they'd been invaded by Germany, the Nazi forces. You can't understand them without understanding their enemies. You can't understand 1 John unless you understand the people that were threatening them. So again, we go back to that idea of 1 John being a test. Okay, that this is what God demands. Let's look at you, love, right doctrine, righteousness. How do you measure up? Ah, there's the purpose of 1 John. No, that's wrong. Because all through this book are writings about people threatening them, people trying to deceive them, people who have left and are still causing problems. So you can't understand this book unless you understand the problematic departed. So let's look at a few passages where they're outlined. Go to 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out. That's why I'll constantly be referring to them as the departed. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John referring his readers to the departed. Go to 2, 24 and 26. Chapter 2, 24 and 26. So that was 2, 18 and 19. This is 2, 24 and 26. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You cannot understand this book unless you understand the problematic departed who are trying to deceive the church that John was writing to. Go to chapter 3, 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. That wasn't just a general idea. Hey, be careful. Someday church, someone might try to deceive you. No, no. Those people right now are trying to deceive you. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Even then, you're seeing something. We read that normally, and if we don't consider the departed if we just think this is just a test for me to measure up to, we read verse 7 where it says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he who practices as he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
We read that and go, okay, do I practice righteously or do I practice unrighteousness? And that's not a bad question to answer, but I want you to see that he's talking about the group that is the church that practices righteousness and those that have deceived them and left them who do not practice righteousness. So it's not just a general statement, do you practice righteousness or unrighteousness? It's saying, hey, there's a group that practices righteousness, you all, and there are those trying to deceive you, the ones that practice unrighteousness. And so the shadow of these problematic departed people hangs over this church. And that's why John wants this church to be assured of where they stand. Because people have left and are in their ear that they're not in the right. That's what's happening. One more time, one more place. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. See that verb, gone out, departed. There are many people who have left this church. They're teaching false things about Jesus, false things about salvation, and they are trying to deceive you and trouble you. You test the spirits. And there's a way to understand whose teaching is from God and whose isn't. We'll get into that in the book. And then down in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God. John talking about him and the other apostles. We are from God. Whoever listens to, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you could say, the ones that know God listen to the apostles. The ones that don't know God are saying something different than the apostles are saying. The departed are the people who've left the church and are still trying to influence the church. They were causing the remaining church, the children of God, to question where they stood with God. So the departed say, we know what's right. We know what's right about Jesus. We know what's wrong with you, what's wrong with John's teaching, and they're trying to get your ear. And John's saying, no, 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 you be reassured. You stand as children of God. Don't let them deceive you. Don't listen to them. These people, the departed, did not demonstrate love. That's why so many exhortations in 1 John are about understanding that the followers of God actually love each other because they don't. These people did not demonstrate righteousness. They did not walk in the light. They walked in the darkness. That's how they lived and are living. And these people did not demonstrate the correct teaching about Jesus. They said things that were simply untrue about Jesus. That's the shadow that hangs over this church. So John's writing not just to get you to take a test to see whether you're saved or not, but there are people causing you to doubt your salvation, and you've believed in Jesus Christ. You've confessed your sin before Him. You've embraced Him as Savior and Lord. And there are people trying to tell you you're in the wrong with God. That's why John writes to reassure this group. So you could say this. It's not a classroom where there are 30 students and everyone's trying to measure up to God and get the straight A. There's a classroom, but there are only 15 students in it. There used to be 30. Now there are 15 that did not listen to the teacher, the Apostle John, as he was sent by God. Did not listen and said, we're out of here. 
We know the right way to succeed. We're dropping out of this school, this class. We know the right way to succeed. We're out of here. And the teacher, the Apostle John is saying, you stay here. You stick with my teaching. You are the, you're the ones that are succeeding. You're the ones that, that are going to pass by the grace of God. You are in the right. Do not listen to them. I know there's a little door that goes into the hallway of the school, and there's a window there, and they're trying to get your attention. Do not listen to them. Don't listen. When they tell you they've got a better way, a new way, they, know, they really know Jesus, you don't. Do not listen to them. You be assured you have eternal life. Don't listen to them. That's what's happening here. You can't understand the book of 1 John unless you understand these departed people, the problematic departed people. There's another key to understanding this book. Point number three, you've got to understand the promises of God in it. What beautiful promises there are all throughout this book. John Calvin said it this way, why can we be confident of having eternal life? He says this, precisely because one's faith is founded on the promises of God, not on one's own works. If you look at your own lack of perfection in your obedience, you will not be reassured of where you stand with God. But if you look to Jesus Christ's perfect merit for you that he gives to you, you can rest assured that you have eternal life. And Calvin just gets that from places like 1 John. I mean, this is fascinating. It's not test language for this local church. There is constant reassurance language all throughout this book. Again, go back to chapter 2, 18 to 20. And I read this already for you about those that have departed, but I didn't read the next words. Listen to 2, 18 to 20 again. Children, it's the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now listen to this. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Friends, please listen to me. John does not say, they went out from us, they are not of us. But you, if you pass the test, you, you might prove that you will be able to be anointed. No. His language is, it's done. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, which means these people have had the Spirit of God come upon them. That doesn't sound like, oh, I wonder where you stand. You perfect yet? I don't know. No, no, no. They are the ones that walk in darkness. They are the ones that practice unrighteousness. They are the ones trying to deceive you. You've been anointed by God. You hear the definitive nature of that language? 2, 12 to 14. Just above that. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins ah, might be forgiven. Does it say that? No, it does not. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. He writes to 
new, immature believers, people who've matured and become young men in the faith, and even the fathers in the faith who've been matured and in Christ for a while. And he tells all three of those levels of maturity, they are right with God. And then, just in case they didn't hear it, he repeats himself. 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Each of these three groups, he repeats his encouragement to them that they are standing rightly with God. You're in the right. So yes, I'm very uncomfortable with this First John being known as tests to see whether you're in the faith. If you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you are in the faith. And you can be assured of eternal life. Don't let them bother you. That's this message. It's not a test to take. It's a Savior's love to rest in. It's a Father's love to be assured of. That's what this letter is, friend. 418. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He doesn't want these people in the church to be afraid of where they stand with God. He just doesn't. There's no fear in love, but perfect love, God's love, casts out fear. You do not need to be afraid of where you stand because you've been loved by Him. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's one thing to know that God is love. It's a whole other thing to believe that He is love for you. And John wants his readers to know that he, the Father loves them. And here's one thing I know about God the Father's love. You can't escape from it. It will always hold you. It will always be there. Can you imagine a child who does wrong to a parent, constantly keeps asking, are you going to kick me out of the family? Or are you going to send me away? Or are you going to not love me anymore? Are you going to distance yourself from me if I sin too much? Hear the Father say, you can never be moved away from my heart. You can never, as my child, be cast away. The, the Father wants most for His children to rest in His love. And this book will show us that a number of times, a number of glorious times. This is an encouraging book. So we cannot understand this book without understanding the promises of God. There are definitive statements made. You've been anointed. You know Him. Perfect love casts out fear. Don't be afraid. This book is meant to give us comfort as believers. There's a fourth thing we need to know about this book, and it's the question you might be asking. Point number four, the perplexity of sin. Okay, I get it. John's writing to reassure them. He tells them that they know God. They've been anointed. They stand rightly with Him. He loves them. I get it. They don't need to be afraid. Okay, 
we're going down the street, we're on the bike, I get it. Assurance is good. Here we go. And then what interrupts that for us, though? A stick through the spokes, and the stick is our own sin. Ah, but what do we do about this? Our own sin interrupts our enjoyment of assurance. Which is why he writes these words in chapter 1, verse 8. Turn here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, my contention is that that's what the departed often said. We're in the right. We're not wrong here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And listen to this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're not alone in this. Other believers who have elsewhere who believe the same things you do have been saved by him. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Our general pattern is to be obedient. But if we do sin, where do we look? Where do we go? Oh, no, I'm not assured. I don't know if I'm a child of God. No, no, no. We confess it to him. And we have an advocate before the Father. So this book of 1 John reassures us that we have eternal life. And sometimes we allow our own concern about our own shortcomings to interrupt that assurance. And we go, I get it, I get it. Those who believe in Him walk in righteousness. They don't walk in darkness. They walk in the light. But, but, But God, what about my sin? Right at the beginning of the book, He tells you how to be assured even while you have remaining sin. How are you assured? You go back to the Son in confession, and you realize that you've got an advocate before the Father. So, you you know those maps that show you, like, the um, ranges of mountains, and you can literally feel them, so it's kind of smooth, and then, oh, we're in the Central Valley of California, so there's kind of a valley, it's smooth, and all of a sudden we go up on both sides, and the map literally rises, and you can kind of see and feel the, the elevation changes on a map. Th- that's like what this passage is right here. Right at the beginning of 1 John, we get this gospel mountain, because he's going to talk about sin and unrighteousness and light and darkness and practicing righteousness and loving others. And of course, we're going to sit there and go, I know that I, I have that pattern in me, but I often fall short still. And so there's this mountain of gospel glory at the beginning of the letter for us to constantly look back to and remember, oh yeah, I've got an advocate. The darkness out there, the world out there, the deceivers out there, they walk as if they do nothing wrong. God doesn't notice. I'm I'm fine. I'm in the right. We know that we do have sin. Even as we walk in righteousness, we know that sin still can entangle us. And so there's this gospel mountain at the beginning of the book that we look back to and go, I've got an advocate. Jesus is my propitiation. He absorbed the wrath of God in my place. Now here I go. Let me go and 
constantly be reminded of the assurance I have. Oh, my sin's brought up again, Gospel Mountain. I've got an advocate. That's why John puts this at the beginning of the letter. I'm writing to you about assurance, and he knows for you to truly be comforted and to know that you have eternal life, you've got to know what your sin, how your sin's taken care of here as a Christian. It's continuing to confess before God and to know that Jesus is your advocate before the Father. This is not a book about you get assurance if you are perfect and never sin. Then nobody would ever have assurance. And notice in the passage I just read to you, walking in the light knows that there's going to be some sin involved in our life. The one who says that I don't sin, they're the ones that make God a liar. God knows that even us who are walking in righteousness as a pattern of life, He knows that we will sin, and He gives us a way to understand that we are still right with Him. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's a reason He calls Jesus Christ the righteous in that passage, because He's the righteous one. His righteousness is what we get credit for. Rest there. So we'll be going back to that gospel mountain even after we pass it, when we're going through 1 John, because it's so important for us to remember. Finally, fifth and finally, I want you to understand this gospel of John. I don't believe you can without understanding the pastoral heart of John. His longing for his people to take a sigh of relief, to to breathe and to rest in the love of the Father and the love of the Son brought about by the work of the Spirit. This book, again, penned by an older now, aging Apostle John, wanting them not just to believe the purpose of his gospel, but wanting them to know that they do have eternal life because they believe. The heart of John wants his children to rest. He calls them little children over and over again in the book. Before he dies, before he goes away, he wants his kids, picture them around his bedside. They've all believed in Jesus Christ. That's not his concern anymore. They've believed in him. Now he wants them to be able to rest assured that eternal life is theirs. That's what the heart of this apostle wants before he goes off the scene. And it's no surprise that he wants this because it's what God the Father wants for his children. God the Father wants his children to rest assured that they are right with him because of Jesus. Jesus the Son wants us assured. The Holy Spirit wants us assured. So it's no wonder this pastor, this apostle, wants his children to be assured of where they stand with him. I remember being in my 20s and there was a particular season of life that was very difficult for me my family knew about it. it uh, I was sad, hurting, and I remember the conversations that I had with my grandfather and my dad, both, and both of them, I, I could hear it in their voice over the phone, their hearts just broke for me. As I was hurting, they were hurting. They wanted me to know peace and joy and happiness. God the Father wants His children to know assurance and peace and rest. He wants His children to know that. 
And that's why His Spirit inspired John to write this letter. You've got to know the pastor's heart because it's actually the heart of God that wants His children to be at rest. Now, before I read this final closing to you, we're going to take a little bit of time to read through the book. It'll take five minutes. Now that you've got a little bit of the stage set, I wonder if if we just read it through this first time, if you'll start to connect some dots and see the goodness of God in here. Okay, so I'm asking you, uh, I get it, today, our day and age, attention spans are this long, right? Okay, we can't just scroll through this quickly. Okay, five chapters, done. It'll take five minutes, okay? Hang in. But I think as we read it now, as I've kind of set the stage for you, I think you might be able to start see what's happening here. John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way which He walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness." Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard in the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, 
and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he's been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there's a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a treasure the church has. An epistle that tells us that we can be right before God and also that we are right before Him and we can be assured of that. I'll finish by quoting Thomas Brooks. I mentioned him earlier. He wrote the book Heaven on Earth. And I want to read you the dedication of the book. He writes to his Christian readers, and I wonder if you might be uncomfortable with some of these words. He writes to reassure them that they are in the right, that they are right before God. And I pray that as we go through the book of 1 John, that you'd be able to embrace the things in this letter and even the things in the introduction that Brooks writes. He writes as if we can be assured of where we stand. He says this, to his readers. You are those worthies of whom this world is not worthy. You are the princes that prevail with God. You are the excellent ones in whom is all Christ's delight. You are his glory. You are his picked, selected, prime instruments, which he will make use of to carry on his best and greatest work against his world and greatest enemies in the latter days. You are a seal upon Christ's heart, You are engraved on the palms of his hands. Your names are written upon his breast as the names of the children of Israel Israel were upon Aaron's breastplate. You are the epistle of Christ. You are the anointed of Christ. You have the spirit of discerning. You have the mind of Christ. You have the greatest advantages and choicest privileges to enable you to try truth, attest to truth, apply truth. And therefore, to whom shall I dedicate this following discourse? But to you yourselves, you have the place to, you have the next place to Christ in my heart. Brooks wants his readers to rest assured that if they've believed in Jesus Christ, they have all the privileges that come with that. They have eternal standing, and they can have assurance 
of eternal life. My prayer is that in the coming months, all of us would rest all the more in the gospel of grace, knowing that our Father loves us, the Son loves us, and the Spirit has sealed us. Let's pray. Father, encourage our hearts over these next couple months. Give our souls rest because of the gospel. When we do think about our own sin and our own shortcomings, I am asking you to bring us quickly back to that gospel mountain, remembering that Jesus Christ is our advocate before you. Give us assurance, Father. And as you do that, give us the freedom to obey, the love to obey, the ability to obey your commandments because they're not burdensome. Give us the desire to glorify you because we know that we're your children forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.